I'm Damian Willis, and this is The Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News, a podcast in which we attempt to pull back the curtain on our reporting process while diving deeper into some of the biggest stories of the week. This week, we're talking to Dulcinea Lada, the academic department head and professor of Borderlands and Ethnic Studies at New Mexico State University. Borderlands and Ethnic Studies began in 2019 as a multidisciplinary program at NMSU to build awareness and cultural understanding of what it means to live along the U.S.-Mexico border. Known as BEST, the department in the College of Arts and Sciences offers a multidisciplinary graduate certificate to address the growing need for knowledge in the areas of cultural competency, equity, and inclusion to work effectively with diverse populations. Lada, a Borderlands and Ethnic Studies professor, championed the program from its inception and advocated for its designation as a department. Her goal is to guide students in examining the intersection of race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, and other identities, and how those identities impact people living in border communities. This week, I'm grateful to have Dr. Lada joining us. First, Dr. Lada, thanks for joining us this week on The Reporter's Notebook. Thanks for having me. Dulcinea, can you start by telling us a little bit about your time before NMSU, how did how did you end up here? And by here, I suppose I mean doing the job you're doing right now at NMSU. Yeah, um, so I'm from this area. I was born and raised in Southern New Mexico. And um, my family is many generations deep here in the borderlands. So I um, was born and raised on a family farm. I am a proud graduate of the Gadsden Independent School District. And after high school, I decided to go far away and I headed off to Michigan State University for my undergraduate work, um, actually in journalism. And from that place of just having my eyes open to um, all kinds of things and notably ethnic studies classes, I really got involved in um, thinking about ethnic studies as a future career pathway. And so that took me to graduate school um, on the West Coast. I went to Berkeley, California for um, to study ethnic studies. And so that's kind of my educational trajectory is all the way from Gadsden to Michigan to the West Coast. And then I only applied to New Mexico State University. I always had this commitment to bring back whatever I learned to um, to hear, to come back home to the borderlands and share that with people. Um, I was that student who would come home in the summers and share PowerPoints and readings with my family and my friends here in Las Cruces um, and El Paso. And I was so excited on fire with what I was learning. And at the same time, disappointed by and confused by why these lessons I was learning weren't um, available in my K through 12 experience. And so that's what brought me back to New Mexico State University. I've been here since 2007. And um, yeah, ever since I came to NMSU, I've been talking to other faculty and students about ethnic studies and thinking about how we could bring that to our to our campus. And where exactly was your your uh, family farm? 
Um, I'm from Berino, okay. New Mexico, which is uh, sort of near Anthony. Mm-hmm. And can you take us through your journey at NMSU that led to the creation of the Borderlands and Ethnic Studies program? Sure. So um, right when I landed here, I was um, excited to meet colleagues and learn about, you know, what was being offered at New Mexico State University. Um, I came here knowing there wasn't an ethnic studies department, but really eager to connect with faculty who um, were of a similar mind to sort of teach um, critical thinking, teach um, accurate history of these borderlands and kind of think in a place based way. I think the incredible strength of NMSU is where we are. Um, We exist in the borderlands, but also in a tri-state area with, um, you know, with uh, Texas and with Chihuahua. Um, And so I just started connecting with people and right away people started giving me their archival documents and their meeting minutes. And I I put together the picture right away that the first wave of um, advocacy for ethnic studies happened in 1968, 1969. There were meetings, uh, faculty meetings and courses created. There were student protests and rallies to raise awareness about kind of the lack of representation, not just in the faculty, but also in the course offerings. And so um, there was sort of a first wave of ethnic studies advocacy in the late 60s, early 70s. And then there was another wave in the early 2000s of, again, meetings and conversations about Chicano Chicano studies, um, Native American studies, ethnic studies, African-American studies. And so I have this archive, this collection of notes and materials where you can see the passion and the um, the commitment that faculty, staff and students and community members have had for over 50 years. And so I just started building that conversation back again in my time here. And here we are in 2022, finally seeing this uh, wish uh, come to reality. So it's a really exciting time. Tell us about the Borderlands and Ethnic Studies program, where where the idea came from and what you would like to accomplish as as you continue to work at getting it off the ground. Yeah, so Borderlands and Ethnic Studies um, comes from taking a place-based approach to an existing academic field, ethnic studies. Uh, For example, when I was in my graduate coursework at Berkeley, the name of the department was Comparative um, Ethnic Studies. Um, Some people have departments of Relational Ethnic Studies. So the borderlands really gives us a specificity, a uniqueness, and an opportunity to both be in the ethnic studies discourse, the ethnic studies field, while at the same time saying we are the borderlands. We are um, specifically here in a particular geographical region with its own history, its own um, social and economic and political context. So um, our acronym is BEST, (laughs) which uh, comes from many conversations with colleagues across the country and with colleagues here at NMSU. And I credit um, then Dean Beth Pollack with coming up with a list of, I think we had over a dozen names and acronyms and we settled on BEST. And so uh, that's pretty, a really sweet name that we're the best department (laughs) and the best program. 
Uh, so we have fun with that. Um, but it's, you know, it's a serious department. And what we hope to uh, accomplish is to start to see the efficacy of these course offerings and program offerings um, with our, our graduates. And so we've been officially offering a graduate certificate for um, a couple of years now. And so we've had uh, between two and four graduates every semester from um, our with our certificate. And we're starting to hear feedback already that not only is this helping me in my work, whatever work that might be, but also it changed my life. Students have said this altered my, my journey, altered my course. And so when they say things like that, I'm not surprised because I felt the same way with this coursework, um, that it's sort of um, not only an intellectual sort of academic training, but it's also um, at the same time sort of a personal and I would say spiritual uplift. So a lot of what we talk about is, you know, we start my graduate seminar with who are you? You know, what is your name? Where do you come from? Um, the same way you started this interview, like I want to know who you are. And we invite students to explore themselves, their their name, their genealogy, their community. And from there, once you have the foundation of who you are and who your people are, then you can start sort of looking more at society. And even though it seems kind of simplistic, you have a lot of students just having their eyes opened right away, um, either finding out things they didn't know or feeling feelings about having not learned basic things about their backgrounds. And so um, so I think it's both an intellectual and uh, a spiritual or personal course of, of applied study. And so really in the future, we plan to offer more courses and more programs. We are home to Native American studies and we are home to uh, Chicana Chicano studies, which is growing. And we also affiliate with Africana studies. And so um, we will be offering exciting new minors in fall 2023 for um, undergraduate students. And we're working on developing a master's program because there's a need for for this graduate program here in New Mexico, but also with um, implementing online classes, we can serve in particular California in-service teachers. Um, right now in California, there is an ethnic studies graduation mandate that um, students have to take an ethnic studies course or two, depending on the district. And I have colleagues in California reaching out saying, do you offer an online certificate or an online master's degree? And so I think NMSU is poised to um, even uh, go beyond our state boundaries and, and work with um, other students from California in particular. We have we've had students from Florida, from the Midwest, uh, from the West Coast, uh, from Colorado who have um, joined our online program. And so uh, we're already seeing the expansion outside of NMSU and also really putting NMSU and Las Cruces on the map. I would think that as you start asking those questions of students, they probably are pretty quick to come to the realization of how closely one's identity is tied up in or, or how it informs their way of viewing not only uh, the curriculum that, that they've been taught, but just the world around them. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, 
like I said, it, it seems like a simple question. Who are you? And when you start peeling back the layers of that question, it can become really profound. So there's many different elements of kind of self-exploration, but you you hit the nail on the head. The The bigger um, conversation is how do we understand society through the lens of history and um, the ways that history has been constructed in convenient ways for some groups and inconvenient ways for others. But then how do we navigate um, society in the body that we live in, um, in the most uh, gracious, successful and effective ways? Now, as we move into graduation and into our careers, um, how do we understand our uh, relative visibility or invisibility in society but more than that Damien like where did that come from right Right? so I I talk to my students a lot of them have been through um, anti-bias training in their workplace or even um, in their school environment and we talk about you know what um, anti-bias training does is it sort of invites the participant to understand where their prejudices come from and then sort of feel bad about it or try to do something about it. But I find it a little bit confusing since a lot of those trainings don't um, delve deeply into history to say, when was the particular moment that this group, let's say Mexican-Americans, was um, labeled as inferior, let's say, and then um, how did that become just part of the norm, right? How did that get built into the way that we see each other um, or African-Americans, Native Americans, um, the LGBTQ community, women even, right? Or light-skinned, dark-skinned, like there's there are particular years and conversations and policies and laws and wars that solidified those um, biases, if you will. And so um, I think the reason sometimes those anti-bias workshops or trainings um, aren't sustained is because they don't package together with here's when that happened and how it happened. Right. And that's why ethnic studies for me is so exciting is um, that we can look at those moments when human beings created um, these laws and rules and attitudes. And as human beings in 2022, let's say, with much more information and much more access to each other across the globe, now we can change that. We can um, do uh, material things that can have material effects to enact equity. And so I talk about equity as you need that accurate historical context in order to understand which groups need more than others right now if we really want to achieve democracy, if we really want to achieve a society where everyone has the same opportunity to thrive. And uh, so if that makes sense, um, I do hope that students walk away with um, courage and the critical thinking skills to be able to speak to whomever, which in whichever context to articulate their reality, their needs and their contributions, um, whether it's in their personal life or their professional life. It seems almost inherent in a history that is 
quote unquote written by winners, the winners, that that is not going to be a history that serves every student very well. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think there's a, 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 a misconception that ethnic studies classes are for minority students. I don't use the word minority, but it's um, well, it's a well-versed term that people know, but it's for all students, right? All sure. students from all walks of life to sit together, look at each other, read and study together and get to um, get to a place of figuring out as a collective, how do we support and amplify each other's voice? And so as ethnic studies um, starts to move into the K through 12 system, I'm thinking I'm working with K through 12 educators to think about the classroom dynamics, right? Um, because there's so much debate about teaching accurate history. There's so much debate about um, bringing the personal into the classroom. And so I'm working with um, teachers to figure out what are the tools that you need in your classroom to ensure that even though these topics may feel uncomfortable for some or all students, that we um, address these topics in a way that shows community care, right? And sure. at the end of the day, this is all about love, right? Like love for self and love for each other, which people miss that point. But it goes back to what you said with there's um, there's a lot at stake for the winners to tell their story in their way and to maintain kind of that um, status quo, if you will. And this department takes on a, a number of different identities. I suppose you'd say race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality and other identities. Can you speak to some of those? Sure. Um, so. Ethnic studies really kind of has at, as, as, at its foundation uh, the study of race. And so it also uses the tool um, called intersectionality. And all intersectionality means is that there are interlocking systems that affect uh, people in different ways. So, for example, I am Chicana. I'm a woman. I, uh, I identify in particular ways according to my race, class, gender, sexual, sexual orientation. But I walk around in the world not prefacing my race or not prefacing my gender, but that happens when people look at me, right? And all of those uh, categories, by the way, are being completely <laughs> um, challenged right now, right? People are thinking in non-binary ways and people are mixed race. So while we address those concepts, those categories that you mentioned, we're also in a really brave moment where the young generation is saying that kind of doesn't serve me anymore. You know, I just want to go by this name and I want to not have this label anymore. And I want adults to honor that that's my decision. And I know that's a as a parent of a 10 year old. I know that's hard to hear your young uh, child um, expressing that they don't want to be defined in the ways that you are, are comfortable with, right? And, and the adult generations are grappling with how do we reframe our understanding so that we support our children. And it's harder for some than others. But um, when we think about those categories, it those point those categories point to again 
how visible we are in society or how invisibilized or how much our voice is um, listened to, how seriously we're taken or how we're not taken seriously. For example, aside from those categories, uh, young people are often not brought to the table when it comes to making decisions that affect a community. And so I've learned through um, my interactions with uh, young people in work, doing the work that I do that it's really important if you want to have an outcome that's good for the health of a society to listen to what young people are saying, not just adults. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about identities very seriously lately. I've been in conversations with um, people here in the community of Las Cruces who talk about, you know, that we need to uh, be humble and be gracious and be grateful, which I agree with those things. But pointing to this idea that we're all kind of inherently bad or we're all sinners. And I think that, you know, it's a taboo topic to talk about religion. But I feel like here in the borderlands, we're a very um, Catholic community, which is beautiful in many ways. But it also kind of teaches us that we are kind of it teaches us that we are inherently bad and we have to constantly atone for that. You know, I think in ethnic studies, what I teach my students is we're all sacred. You know, if we believe in a higher um, being that we are all inherently sacred, we're all inherently intelligent, we're questioning curious beings. And so when I speak to the the pairing of the intellectual and um, spiritual aspects of ethnic studies, ethnic studies teaches that we're all inherently good and human, right? So that we have these capacities to look outside ourselves and look outside the benefit that could come to us in an opportunistic way and instead say, what am I on this planet to do? What is my purpose if not to create a happier, more fun, more healthy, more thriving situation, not just for myself, but for the people that live around me, for my community? Yeah. And by that same token, you know, we're all ideally we're, we're all also striving toward improvement, Sure, you know, sure. not not only uh, on a personal level, but also kind of leaving behind a better society mm-hmm. than the one we found. Absolutely. I, yes. Well said. <laughs> you said it better than I did, Damien. You've said this. Here's something that you certainly said better than I could. <laughs> uh, a stronger understanding of how society works and offers opportunities or disadvantages historically and contemporarily can really boost a person's ambition to work within and to change a system that's designed in these ways to operate in ways that segregate and preclude opportunities for some groups. Can you kind of expand on that a little little bit? That's a mouthful. (laughs) I'm thinking about that long quote. Um, I would, I would answer it this way. Um, You know, as I mentioned, I was uh, born and raised and educated here in the borderlands, and I'm a full professor, which means I've gone through three stages of professorhood. And I'm only scratching the surface now. Right now, I feel like on the incredible, rich history and legacy and um, depth of, of this area, in particular Las Cruces and the surrounding areas. I often share uh, with people that I talk about these three events that are really significant. 
in this area. So one is the the Pueblo Revolution of 1680, where uh, Pueblo people from what would be considered now northern New Mexico successfully overthrew uh, the colonizers from the north and and marched them out of New Mexico after about some decades of uh, colonization. Um, and successfully overthrew that that colonizing um, group and marched them all the way down to what is now considered Juarez. And so in that revolution, which is the very first successful overthrow of a colonizer, the other one was the Haitian Revolution of the early 1700s, the Pueblo people um, settled here in Las Cruces partially, but also in Isleta del Sur and Juarez. And the the mountain that New Mexico State University is next to, Tortugas Mountain, or I've learned the another name, Patsalie, is marks that revolution, marks that moment of um, indigenous people succeeding in in that um, quest for liberation. Um, the second event happens in the mid 1800s, which is the end of the U.S.-Mexico War, where um, people who were Mexican nationals uh, suddenly found themselves being in the United States and given the option to stay or leave. Lots of people in this area moved to the other side of the river. So Mesilla and Chamberino are two examples of what would be known now as kind of refugee colonies where Mexican people said, I want to remain Mexican and not stay in the United States. And of course, years later, that boundary shifted with the Gadsden Purchase. But that's another example of um, that pride in being Mexican, speaking Spanish, being in the being connected to the land in that way. And the third example I talk about is the history of Blackdom, New Mexico, um, which, right. uh, yeah, which saw um, multiple families come by foot all the way from Georgia in the early 1900s to all the way to New Mexico to escape the Confederacy, to escape the, the KKK, to escape the new Jim Crow and settled in near Roswell and created their own utopia called Blackdom. And I've seen uh, letters where people wrote to their family members who had traveled north to Chicago, let's say, and told their family members, the real place is New Mexico. You have to come here. You have to help us um, build this community that was thriving for quite a few years. And so when people ask me about this area, um, I think there's such a deficit understanding of Las Cruces as though we're kind of devoid of a rich history. And we talk about Billy the Kid and we talk about kind of this Wild West um, narrative, which is not complete without understanding those three moments of a revolution, a westward migration and uh, an insistence to stay on the Mexican side. And so um, Las Cruces is literally the homelands of people who have been so dignified and courageous. And, and I think about the uh, footprints discovered at White Sands a few years ago that illustrate, demonstrate that there has been civilization and life here, human life for 50 to 60,000 years, right? So the, the ancestors of who we call the Pueblo people now, of the, the indigenous people of this area. So I think of Las Cruces, White Sands, Vado, Mesilla as the literal crux of civilization in the Western 
hemisphere. So I feel like if I'm answering, I'm answering your question in a long way, but I feel like if we were to teach these stories of success, of strength, of dignity, we'd be a different people. The curriculum for K through college here in New Mexico is, in, is incredibly incomplete. And so one of the things that I'm doing outside of New Mexico State University is working closely with Las Cruces schools, Gadsden schools. We're even working with Mescalero and teachers in Cliff, New Mexico, Carlsbad, New Mexico, uh, to figure out how do we write those lessons that I just shared with you and how do young people start hearing those stories so that it's not a happenstance that you learn about that when you go to college, right? But how do you build these lessons into to let young people know that they are uh, royalty. They come from uh, revolutionaries and people get scared of the word revolutionary. All it means is innovative change. And, and in these um, three stories that I just mentioned, those were stories of literal survival and people went on to thrive because of that courage. So um, I would just I would just say that changing the curriculum to be more inclusive and more accurate is going to change the way we think about Las Cruces in the most incredible ways. Yeah. And I've been thinking a lot about what has always been taught as the Pueblo revolt. And in those conversations, colonialization it might not take a, a front seat role. You know, it may not be historically for generations it might not might not have been taught in those terms and i think that that's certainly a more honest way it, you it's hard to explain what the revolution was about if you don't look at the factors that drove the pueblo people to revolt yeah. you know and I think it's just time to be honest. Um, it's a hard conversation. I have family that identifies as Mexican-American, Chicana, Chicano. We are learning more and more about our indigenous ancestry every day. And so, you know, people feel nervous and shut down right away when they hear the word colonization or when they hear that, you know, that the Spanish people who came colonized indigenous people and enslaved them and there was torture and there was violence. We need to have the, the courage to have those honest conversations about things that happened hundreds of years ago if we want to now sit together as Las Cruces, as people in Doña Ana County or even the borderlands and have meaningful conversations that um, can break down the barriers between us in order to deal with important issues like how are we going to take care of our land, take care of our water? How are we going to grow an economy in a way that's sustainable and that will serve the next seven generations rather than just these kind of immediate uh, urgent conversations? How can we think into the future, um, into future generations? And that's going to require us to be honest and to admit things that were done in the past that created these social stratifications. Right. Real quickly, what kind of response have you seen to the new program so far? 
Um, students are very excited. We have students from various backgrounds, criminal justice, education, the health, health sciences, uh, rhetoric, uh, students from communications. And so there's a lot of enthusiastic um, outpouring from students. And now that we're uh, firmly solidifying our new department status, I think that's just going to grow. The support from the larger community, both locally and statewide, is incredible. We have a good relationship with the New Mexico Public Education Department that is working hard to figure out how to address the Martinez-Yazzie legal ruling of 2018. I just want to uh, tip my hat to the people who are grappling with this, including myself. I often tell people to have patience and grace because we're trying to understand uh, an educational system that has been designed to maintain social stratification for hundreds of years. So now we need to take a gentle approach to um, uh, providing a more accurate curriculum, providing more preparation for our incredible teachers. There has been some uh, concern, uh, I would say, from mostly people that don't understand ethnic studies, that don't understand critical race theory. People are being informed by, I think, sound bites that make these ideas seem scary. And I have compassion for that. I know that change is hard, but we're living in a moment where it's time to do things differently. And I appreciate all the people who are supportive in that in that shift. So we, like I said, we work with school districts and teachers and parents and young people. We've been writing curriculum with high school students, um, brilliant high school students from Alma de Arte and the Arrowhead um, Early High School and Las Cruces schools. And so the Support is huge and extended and exciting. Uh, we're also working with teachers now in California who are developing their curricula at the same time. But the negative response, I think, is just people that lack information. And I always invite people to have coffee with me and <laughs> meet me and talk to the people that are doing this in the classroom. There's teachers that are teaching these lessons right now in the classroom. Talk to us a little bit about your grant funding and why those granting institutions found what was happening at NMSU to be interesting. Sure. We have um, state funding, private funding, public funding. We have small grants and large grants. And so I, I like to talk about how we have a variety of grants that shows um, that that funders are interested in what we're doing at different scales because they see they see that we're making things, Damien. We're, we're making um, games and posters and modalities and lesson plans. Um, so while the debate is raging on about whether or not we should do this, I kind of got bored by talking about critical race theory so much. And so I, I said to my, my team, why don't we just start making things? And so the funders, I think, like that we work with um, communities. Uh, so it's not just faculty in academia writing new lesson plans saying I'm the historian I know best we're going into the classrooms with uh, high school middle school and elementary school teachers we're talking to um young people. We're talking to um, experts who are leaders and historians in their own communities. We're talking to artists and musicians. And so um, what we're trying to do is create films and lessons and games and museum exhibitions that are beautiful. <laughs> I tell people that 
when they go see our museum exhibition, we intentionally made it colorful and we, we made the images really beautiful and soft. And we made sure that the font is inviting, right? So our funders like to see that we're actually making things that can be tangible and that can be used um, by educators formally and informally. Yeah. And <laughs> of course you had to say what you said about critical race theory, uh, uh-huh. just as I was about to ask you about critical race theory. <laughs> Go and, ahead. <laughs> and how does CRT play into the curriculum of this program? Because as you've noted a few times so far, it's certainly become a hot topic, particularly in K through 12 schools across the country, but it also seems to be instrumental in addressing the, the Yezzy Martinez settlement. So, you know, like that does seem like it has to be included in the path moving forward for New Mexico schools. Yeah. So I I think that phrase critical race theory has three words in it that are alarming to some people. (laughs) You know, I, I often have compassion for that just because I've been learning critical race theory for 25 years. Um, And so when people hear it for the first time and it's completely out of your wheelhouse, it's nothing you've ever heard of before. I can see how people might be alarmed. Um, Critical race theory is uh, an incredibly um, complex, intellectual, theoretical, historically grounded, sociologically grounded area of study within ethnic studies and within legal studies that is um, that is taught in depth for weeks on end or for seminars on end. And so there's that critical race theory, which is, you know, labeled as, you know, for graduate school only. Um, when you talk about K through 12, Damien, um, it's really I go back to what I said about anti-bias training being kind of superficial. Uh, critical race theory is an in-depth explanation of the historical ways that we've arrived at a society that privileges some people over others, pretty much, right? How how race is taken into consideration with every institutional decision and policy that is made. And it could be subtle and it could be very overt. I think it's harder now for us to detect racism in in an institution than it was in 1950, for example. But you can see the the ways subtly that race um, inhabits an institution, whether it's a university or a school system or government systems, etc. And so it's really, I guess the word has become such a catch-all and made people very alarmed, but you can teach critical race theory concepts to kindergartners. My daughter that I mentioned, who's 10 years old, has been learning critical race theory and ethnic studies since she was born. Um, It's just a matter of how you scaffold those lessons and how you make them um, developmentally appropriate, right? So There's a move to now teach Indigenous People's Day instead of Columbus Day, right? And that was very contentious. That went all the way to the state level. And now some districts have adopted Indigenous People's Day. Other people, other districts still do Columbus Day. And so that's 
an example of critical race theory um, in application, right? Do we want to teach the truth of what was happening with peoples on this continent when um, when people came from Europe um, as colonizers, right? That's that's the truth of what happened. And I think as adults, we just need to get courageous and be honest. And when people think about critical race theory or teaching ethnic studies as kind of this radical departure from how we've been doing things, I ask people to consider that that's not really radical. It's completely reasonable. One kind of activity I I teach in my classes and to workshops, people at workshops is um, to keep an accommodations diary or journal for a day or for a week. And I ask people to just individually, privately on their own, keep a little list um, during the day of any time that they feel that they have to accommodate someone else and any time that they feel that someone else has accommodated them. Um, and it takes some it takes some training to figure out how to do that. But it's a simple way to look at your checklist and see, am I someone who is asked to constantly accommodate others to make myself smaller, to be quiet in a space, to be the observer rather than the speaker? Or am I someone that people do things for a lot and make way for me a lot? And do I occupy a lot of um, speaking space in a meeting? Am I always called to the table or am I grateful the very few times that I am or not at all? And so that exercise can help us understand as a community where our privileges are and where our disadvantages are. And if we want to really create space for someone at a table more concretely, it is going to be an adjustment. And some people are going to enjoy that adjustment and others are not. So um, a lot of a lot of ethnic studies has to do with attitudes. And we don't talk about that often, but are we do we have an attitude and a temperament of sharing (laughs) or do we prioritize ourselves first? And so that's one of the lessons there, too. So I don't I don't I didn't focus completely on critical race theory, except to say we can't get stuck on that and we can have compassion for people who don't understand it. But it's up to people, especially as adults, to you can Google critical race theory and find tons of videos and tons of uh, one page simplified explanations for it. Um, so I, I invite people to kind of learn more before engaging in this kind of black and white dialogue that doesn't really move us anywhere as a community. Just kind of focusing on it as a buzzword rather than diving a little deeper into the nuance. And also asking yourself, how come a lot of people are excited about this? Right. Right. I I think that's also an important part of the conversation. And you mentioned Columbus Day versus Indigenous Peoples Day. And it seems to me that both can be taught. But certainly the way we we talk about either one needs to the language we use and, and what we focus on certainly needs to more closely reflect the reality. Yeah, I I agree. I think um, there's so many ways that this can be taught. And that's why I feel like we need to slow down and really take um, an intentional pace with how this work unfolds. Um, Because you're right, I think that we can 
put those two stories next to each other and invite the students to explore what those different narratives mean, right? From a sort of history, historiography kind of lesson, you know, this is one way of the story. This is another. I often tell my students, you know, there, there's as many viewpoints as there are people, you know, it's not two sides to every story. It's infinite sides to every story. And so that makes it even more complicated. So I feel like I want to make a generalization that as um, United Statesians, we don't complexify issues. You know, we, we want to keep things pretty simple and that does a disservice to our students, especially on the global scale, to teach our students to be comfortable with complexity and to be comfortable with multiple narratives and um, be solid in having a vocabulary where you can engage in meaningful dialogue is what we need to do to to just give our students the best um, opportunity to live a, a healthy life and to be able to make decisions in more um, sustainable ways, I would say. Yeah. And I think that as humans, we we tend to err on the side of simplification anytime it's convenient. Sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and we need to fight against that impulse whenever whenever we have the chance. Dulcinea, what do you want to add that we haven't talked about? I just would say that any Las Cruces or or Borderlands uh, people that are hearing this, um, please uh, embrace the possibility of a new way of, of learning and relating to each other. And, you know, the Borderlands and Ethnic Studies faculty here at NMSU, we're very open to feedback and conversation. Um, we'd love to start having public conversations in the communities surrounding NMSU um, because I recognize that these are new ideas for many people and um, we've taught social studies the same way for <laughs> decades. In fact, we use the same books in some school districts. Um, and so I would say, you know, instead of kind of getting riled up by the idea of teaching and learning in new ways, I would um, invite more conversation, more kind of contemplation, kind of a, a deeper feeling for what does a more inclusive education, what will that do for us in the future? And so um, I just I keep thinking of time and asking people to consider the impact that growing a healthy youthful generation that that impact will um that it will carry us all to a better place and so i just i just ask people to contemplate rather than kind of reacting to what new social st study standards mean and what critical race theory means um and to ask yourself why it's why it feels um controversial or why it makes you nervous and kind of sit with that and of course reach out to best faculty where we love these conversations we are very patient respectful uh, faculty who have uh, something to offer that i think is really valuable for new mexican students fantastic thank you dr lada so much for your time today thank you damien thank you for listening to this episode of the reporter's notebook we also have a newsletter sharing reporter stories about all about how we report stories. You can find all of our reporting in the Las Cruces Sun News. A huge thanks goes out to Dulcinea for joining us this week. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, 
and many of the places you find your favorite podcasts. This has been The Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News. I'm your host, Damian Willis. This week's podcast was written and produced by me. You can also find all of our local reporting brought to you daily by reporters who live and work in Las Cruces online at www.lcsun-news.com. For all of us at The Sun News, thank you for the privilege of your time.